This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In today's program, we're talking about the Trinity, three easy foundations so that you can remember and help communicate to friends and families and the lost on what the Trinity is and exactly how it works. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. You know, we've done a lot of episodes on the Trinity. We have an entire playlist on the Trinity. I think it might be 20 episodes deep, uh, at least. Maybe it's 18 episodes. It's quite large. So we we like to tackle the subject of the Trinity uh, because it's one of the things that, frankly, just brings our heart great joy. And we think it's one of those Christian doctrines that every Christian needs to have a firm grasp on. But a lot of our conversations have been uh, really theologically robust. So we wanted to be able to, to create some content that would be accessible for lay people. So in today's episode, we're going to try to do just that. Before I dive into the kind of show outline and some of those other things, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. Uh, If you have been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've produced and you want to support the channel, there are links in the description that you can click on. A one-time gift can be given on PayPal or a reoccurring gift as low as five bucks a month can be given on Patreon. And if you give as low as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content. Pre-released interviews at times that we film them early, they get released there. Uh, we're releasing a book club today. It was decided that we are going to be doing the screw tape letters on the book club. We had a big vote uh, between a couple of C.S. Lewis books, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, anyway, screw tape letters won out. So if you want to join that book club, you got about two weeks to pick up that book and join us Saturday mornings for those discussions. Uh, without further ado, I want to introduce my partner in crime, Michael Roundtree. How are you doing over there in Oklahoma, buddy? I am doing well, Josh. Uh, yeah, excited about today's episode, talking about the Trinity. Uh, and just want to encourage you guys to make sure you hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss anything that we have coming out. Tomorrow is going to be an interview with Dave Harvey, who's written a book about eldership. Uh, do you think that senior pastors are a thing that can be defended scripturally? I'm uh, going to talk about that, among other things, in the context of eldership. And then Wednesday, we have our To Be Continued series about the continuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, and so we'll release that episode on Wednesday, 4 o'clock. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 4 p.m. live. Hit that subscribe button and hit the like button, too. So uh, today, Josh, we are talking about the Trinity. So where should we begin? Yeah, so I want people to understand exactly what we're going to be talking about in this program. Uh, I talk about three foundations. Okay, those three foundations are uh, uh, were monotheistic. Okay, that's how you understand the Trinity monotheistically. You're going to understand the Trinity within the idea that there are three persons within that monotheistic God. So one being, but three persons uh, in that one being. We're going to explain that if that sounds a little confusing to you. And then finally, when we talk about uh, 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 Trinitarian doctrine, we're talking about each person is uh, equal 
uh, obviously in value, but they are co-eternal and, and, and uh, yes, co-equal, co-eternal. Those are the words that we use to frame each person. So the father's not greater than the son. The son's not greater than the father. And they're equally eternal in their, uh, uh, not one was hey, created. Josh, the son's not this created. This episode is crashed. Is it really? Yeah. People are saying it's crashed. Can you guys hear us in the chat? Wonderful. Um, hopefully people can see us. We have 28 people on. Thumbs up. A bunch. Which is kind of low for us, I'm hoping. Guys, let us know if you are seeing this program come in. Let me turn down my volume on this YouTube video just to verify everything. Okay. They're can saying you, it's up again. It's up Let's again? Okay. It. Okay, well, let's see if it works. So those are the three areas of monotheism, or not monotheism, three areas of the Trinity that we're going to be talking about. Uh, monotheism, three persons in the Trinity, co-eternal, co-equal. Uh, I pulled these points right out of uh, the Forgotten Trinity book by James White. Uh, it's a wonderful resource that I encourage everyone to pick up when they're studying the Trinity. It's very accessible. Uh, next week, next Monday, we're actually going to pick up on this conversation, but we're going to be talking about Christology. So we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ and how he fits into monotheism, how he fits into, uh, 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 you know, three persons, uh, how he fits, how he fits into three persons. Jesus, the Trinity conversations are always a little nerve wracking. Try not yeah. to commit. Heresy. Try not to commit heresy within the first 10 minutes of the program. That's actually the goal that we have here at Her at, uh, Heretic at Heresy Radio. Radio? <laughs> <laughs> Is to try not to commit heresy. But yeah. here we go. Treading into the waters of the Trinity. Okay. Well, uh, Josh, did I cut you off though? No, I was just going to say that he is one of the persons of the Trinity and that he is co-equal, co-eternal. So um, let's talk about what um, the kind of difficulty that we have with the Trinity uh, and the idea that God is ineffable. And we're using created things to describe the uncreated God. So when we use logic, when we use objects of comparison or illustrations to talk about God, we're actually treading in dangerous territory and on dangerous grounds because when we start using created things like water, like eggs, like three-headed dragons, even with our illustrations, again, because a three-headed dragon's not a real thing, but if you look at that and you say, this is what God is like, you're beginning to compare him to created things or things based out of reason. And because God is um michael called out so i don't know what's going on guys can y'all still hear me michael you still there i just got back in Jeez, louise hey can we need to test this speed making sure that uh not the speed make sure that the people are watching guys let me know in the comment section are we disconnecting at all or is it just my connection between michael that will help us understand so unfortunately we're talking about the most technical doctrine uh, within Christendom while having technical difficulties. Uh, we're hoping that won't backfire. Yeah, um, it. yeah, it's frozen from the consumer end. It is frozen from the consumer end. So I'm playing right now and it seems like it's coming through. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I say we keep going and see what happens. Um, okay. Um, got, uh, okay, so here we're talking about God being ineffable. Okay. God cannot be fully comprehended. Um, that's different than talking about rational rationale or reason. God in his nature can be understood as God has revealed himself. Right. So part of us are going to say, uh, part of uh, Christian theology is going to say that God is separate and he's different. He's holy. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't fully conceptualize what God is because he is uncreated. Um, but within that same uh, that same kind of context, there's another tension on the other side that says God has revealed himself. 
So we don't have this exhaustible knowledge of who God is, but we do have knowledge of what he's revealed. And what he's revealed is rational. It does make sense and we can comprehend it. So there is a tension there that we have to live within. Um, it's important uh, to believe in right Christology. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh, for many false prophets have gone out of the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God and the spirit that can, uh, you know, the spirit, whoo, I lost my spot, uh, that they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out of the world. Verse 2. By this, you know, the, uh, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that is not confessed, Jesus is not from God. This is uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. And he continues on. But in, in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, he says, if you have a wrong knowledge of who Jesus is, um, that's a false spirit and the spirit of an Antichrist. It's a salvation issue if you have the knowledge of Jesus wrong, right? If I told you Jesus was a five foot four Asian woman, uh, I would have a wrong Christology, right? You can't just say we're worshiping the same Jesus, but we have all the facts of that Jesus wrong. So that's really important. John 17, 3 tells us that eternal life is to, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So the knowledge of these persons within the Trinity, being the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are important to the Christian faith. Now, Michael, I want to kind of toss this over to you. Would you say... I mean, we know tons of evangelicals would have a hard time articulating perfectly the doctrine of the Trinity. How would we understand their salvation if they're saying, well, I'm ignorant to this subject, but uh, I do believe in the Trinity, but I not, might not be able to articulate it perfectly. I mean, is there salvation in question? Well, the church has, the church has endeavored to answer this question in history around the 5th century, the Athanasian Creed, named after the church father Athanasius, the great defender uh, of orthodox doctrine against the Arians who believed that Jesus was created. Uh, and so the Athanasian Creed, which bears Athanasian's, uh, Athanasius's name, uh, I guess might be 4th century. Anyway, uh, it's probably right on the line. Josh, maybe you can help me out. Either way, um, here's how it begins. Here's how Nicaea it begins. It says, or Athanasian? Uh, no, I'm actually talking about Athanasian. Uh, okay. Anyway, he was a fourth century bishop, but I, I felt like this was written in the fifth century. Either way, you guys can check my math. You have Google. Uh, whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. Whoever does not, Catholic means universal. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Uh, whoever does not guard it whole and in, and inviolable inviolable and doubt will doubtless doubtless perish eternally now this is the catholic faith we worship one god and trinity and the trinity in unity neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being and then it goes on to talk about the father is one person the son is another and the spirit is another but the deity of the father the son and holy spirit is one equal in glory co-eternal in majesty and uh athanasian the athanasian uh, Athanasian Creed is one of my favorites just because, you know, it'll just go through, uh, you know, the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the, the Spirit is eternal, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Spirit is almighty, yet we don't believe in three almighties, but one almighty. And it, and it just emphasizes that, that we do believe in one God, and yet there are three distinct 
persons and, and it just it goes in and out in every which way and trying to make sure that we really grasp this without dividing the substance or confounding the persons as it says and so uh, and so i love the athanasian creed i don't have it memorized i should memorize it someday uh, maybe it'd be a good project for me but i do read it uh with some regularity and um and, and according to the athanasian creed you are not saved don't have proper trinitarian doctrine and uh josh for me i do think you need uh proper Trinitarian theology to be saved, full stop, okay? The, I, I think what I would say, though, is that if there's somebody who missteps in the way they articulate it, but if you, it, but if you put in front of them true Trinitarian theology amidst like a group of false statements and they could pick the true one, even if they weren't able to articulate it, that person's still saved. Or if they just use like a bad analogy for the Trinity, um, but in the, but they actually know that it's one God and three persons, that person is still saved. So I, I don't want to create this atmosphere where it's like, oops, I tripped up. I lost my salvation. No, I don't think that is the case. I'm talking about people who overtly deny that Jesus Christ is the eternal God worthy of worship. There you go. I think that if you deny that you are not saved. Uh, people who think that the Holy Spirit is a substance or an energy, but not himself God, or maybe maybe that the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of God, but not God himself, that person, in my opinion, cannot be saved. And, and that puts a, a number of supposed Christian sects in jeopardy uh, because of the way that they articulate Trinitarian theology. And I would say that it's not me putting them in jeopardy. It is both the scripture and church history putting them in jeopardy. Yeah, and I think that you you nailed it in your specificity there because the way I would typically articulate it is you're not damned because you can't affirm, but you can be damned if you explicitly deny, right? So if I have a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old who has placed authentic faith in Jesus for salvation. They understand uh, that Jesus' Father is God, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, but they can't really suss out how that works. I'm not looking at my four-year-old and saying, you're damned to eternal you know, destruction until you can perfectly articulate the Trinity. But if my kids came to me and they denied that Jesus was God, right? They denied that the Holy Spirit was an actual person, but some kind of force that emanated from God, or uh, they denied, um, I don't know, that, that Jesus was eternal with the Father, then they would be denying the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a difference between, like what Michael said, ignorantly professing or professing inaccurately uh, th rather than denying. So I, I think it's always like this. If you present the doctrine of the Trinity as it's orthodox, you know, quote the Athanasian Creed, quote the Nicene Creed, and someone can go, yeah, I agree with that, right? But whenever they articulate the doctrine of the Trinity, they end up going to ice, water, and steam, right? Uh, there's just in incompatibility. There's a video of Stephen Furtick that's really popular of him just talking about God coming in modes I think if I put an orthodox Nicene formulation in front of Furtick, he would say, yeah, I agree with that. I think the problem is that there's just an ignorance there where he doesn't know the difference between the two. And I don't think that I'm going to call his salvation into question on that subject. I might, I might question some of his leadership as someone who's trying to lead a church, but that's neither here nor there. Um, right. But, but Josh, some people are going to say like, hey, if God is so ineffable and if literal pastors of churches 
are messing this up, this whole Trinity thing. Like, why don't we just scrap it all together? What, why are we even trying to figure this whole thing out uh, about the Trinity? He's too ineffable. He is beyond our understanding. Let's just settle for uh, a good old monotheism, kind of Judy. I mean, of course, we are monotheistic, but uh, a Judaistic sort of expression of it and uh, and, and forget this whole Trinity talk, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Uh, what would you say to somebody who talks like that? Well, I mean, just earlier we explained in John 17, 3, eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So salvation hinges upon your knowledge of God, right? Well, all the salvation passage, right? You have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he died and that God rose him from the dead, right? So there is connections there. If you're going to believe the scriptures and Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit another, uh, another, a paraclete. The, the, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12 that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it's an unforgivable sin. If you believe the Holy Spirit's a force, you can't blaspheme a force, right? To, to attack the knowledge of God itself is to an, uh, or to create an image of God that he is not is to create an idol. It is idolatry and it's worship of a false God. And we don't want to do that. If someone's walking around saying Jesus is the brother of Satan, which the Mormons do, right? And that's nowhere in the scriptures. Truths about God is what makes God God. You falsely represent those truths. Say he comes in the image of a bull or a calf of some kind made in gold. You are falsely attributing an image to God that he is not. Right. You're calling him a created thing rather than a creator. It's these kinds of things that we see the wrath of God inflamed against the people of the earth all throughout the book of Isaiah, all throughout the book of Exodus, over and over again. They erect these images of who God is that he expressly denies. So it's important that we worship rightly. God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. Amen. If we're going to love God and worship him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we better know him with our mind to worship him with our mind. Um, That's that's how to answer that. Anything you'd add? Yeah, no, I I love that. I I do think that the central issue is worship. Even if you look at the Psalter, the very first Psalm is Psalm 1. It's a Torah Psalm, and blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And and this is meant to be a door, a gateway into the rest of the Psalter, because if we don't understand God rightly according to his word, then none of the rest of the worship of the Psalms matters. Mm -hmm. Psalm 2 through 150 matters none if you don't get Psalm 1. If you don't start with the scripture, as you said, Josh, we worship in spirit and in truth. And this is where I get nervous about our biblically illiterate culture today, Josh, is that you can slap the name Jesus on something and people are like, okay, we're all in the same tribe. But just because somebody uses the label Jesus doesn't mean they're talking about or worshiping the same Jesus that we are. Mormons don't worship the same Jesus we do. Jehovah's Witness doesn't worship the same Jesus we do. They use the name but they don't worship like we do. We have to start with God as he is defined in the scripture. You say, well, the word Trinity doesn't, isn't used in the scripture, but the scriptures do reveal God as Trinity. And that is our basis. The scriptures reveal that the father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods. There is only one God. The scriptures use 
uh, speak of God in this way, that we're to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It puts all three persons of the Trinity on the same plane. If you were to say, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and Josh Lewis, well, that's blasphemy because you put Josh Lewis on the same plane. I even felt uncomfortable with you saying it. I know. Exactly. And so the scripture reveals God as Trinity. And so uh, it may not use that word, but it doesn't matter because it does reveal him that way in scripture. And so when we talk about God's ineffableness, his incomprehensibility, that doesn't mean that we can understand nothing about him. We do understand things about him. How do we understand things about him? Not because somebody got off in a corner and had some prophetic revelation about some new thing about God. Not because Richard Rohr wrote a book about how you can be Christ Uh and how you can be Christ and how you can be Christ about universal Christ. No, we go to the book, the revelation that's given to us in Scripture. We have the revelation of Scripture. Uh, We have the testimony of history. Uh, In history, uh, the church has continually beat down one heresy after another that has cropped up and tried to redefine who God is or redefine who Christ is and the personhood of Christ. And uh, and the church has just come back to this over and over again. And, and even in the Protestant Reformation, where you have this massive rift, or to go back to the Great Schism, uh, the, the rift between the East and the West, all throughout, through all of these rifts, the church has held on to this, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God in three persons. And so you mean to come to me, Johnny come lately, and tell me some angel appeared to you and the church missed it for all these years, but suddenly you got it? I'm going to go with no. We have a scripture and we have history testifying that interpretation of scripture, which we have codified into creeds and confessions. Amen. So. No, yeah. I think I think that's actually really, really important because some will say, well, we believe that the church, you know, early on erred in a lot of ways. And, and me and Michael will go, yeah, sure. There was early on in the church, there was disagreements about baptism. And we clearly believe there's a right way to baptize, right? And there was some disagreements on some soteriology and some eschatology um, on the table. We, we looked at all these various areas of scripture and there was disagreement within the church. And we said, yeah, there, there's done tons of disagreement and, and even divergence from the truth. You know, the further you go along, it seems like the further departure from the text of Scripture itself we get. But you know, the one thing that we've always agreed on was the Godhead, um, the church universal, the church Catholic, as Michael said. We've always agreed on this one thing that God was Trinity, that God is Trinity and God ever will be Trinity. This triune nature that we see clearly in the scriptures uh, have been found there. And and I love this verse. Um, And as I say, I love this verse. I have to pull it up because I don't have it right in front of me. But in John 10, 27, right? He says, my sheep hear my voice and, uh, and know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that seems like a very contrary message to the message I hear from a lot of these cult groups. The message was lost, right? For for 2,000 years, the message had lost and my prophet claimed it back. Whether it was Ellen White, whether it was Joseph Smith, whether it was some kind of Jehovah's Witness that came along and said, well, you know, uh, they do listen to another voice and they have been listening to another voice for 2,000 years, but just suddenly, uh, you know, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ was born afresh and anew with all these novel interpretations that have never been anywhere in church history that wasn't marked as heresy. So I think it's really important that we, we put 
scripture rightly that 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 uh, uh specific revelation right the confessionally that we go okay i can't have an exhaustive knowledge of god but i can't have a rational knowledge of god uh but then also that historical context um i mentioned at the top of the show and i think it's probably good to reiterate now that we've you know gone 20 minutes deep uh with kind of an introduction we need to talk about those three points once again monotheism right uh, there's three persons in the godhead uh, and that those persons are co-eternal and co-equal uh, this is a working definition and if you are trying to figure out where did josh come up with these terms these guides james white the forgotten trinity i said at the top of the show say it again it's a great book this is the definition he gives within the one being that is god there exist et- uh, eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the definition that he provides. That's the definition I agree and affirm. And and it's set up by those three foundational pieces that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Michael, do you want to explain? I'm just reading your notes, and it says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you wrote James White's name right after it, so it looks like a fourth... No, it's, we're it's the quotation. It's a, it's a dash, and then it says okay. James White. Like from, and there's quotation. Mar- there's no quotation marks. Oh no! Uh, but I can Heresy see how you would come to that conclusion. There we go. Yeah. So what did you you were you were about to ask me a question? What did you want? Do you want to explain, explain monotheism for us? Yeah, we believe in one God. Uh, so we're not polytheists uh, like the Hindus who believe in three hundred. Gosh, is three hundred sixty-three million or three hundred thirty-six million? I always forget, but. Uh, lots of millions and way more than anyone could possibly worship. So uh, you have uh, polytheism and then you have uh, monotheism. But within monotheism, we're, we're not bare monotheists in the sense that we believe that there uh, is no triunity within God. So, so it's actually possible to believe that there is just one God, even though he exists eternally. In three persons. So uh, a couple of verses for us. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord. The Lord is one. I should emphasize that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, your your soul, and all your might. And these are the words that I command you and shall be on your heart. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe. And understand that I am he before me. No God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. So uh, I should pause there for a minute. So if somebody says, hey, Jesus is God, that's the title that he bears. And I and I worship him as God. It's just that God the Father created him. Uh, that's not mono. That's uh, that's not tri, uh, Trinitarian theology right there. OK, because Jesus was created. He has to uh, he has to be co-eternal. Uh, along with God the Father and God the Spirit. And so uh, uh, before me, there was no God formed. Jesus is God. If you're going to give him that title, he was not formed. That's Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah 44, 4 through 6, They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Uh, and so, which interestingly is a, a title that Jesus takes upon himself in the book of Revelation. Yep. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So he's actually taking this from Isaiah 44. So that which applied to God the Father in the o- Old Testament, or just it just says it applies to God. 
Jesus applies it to himself. So Jesus is therefore claiming and making that statement that he himself is God and he is aligning himself with the eternal one. So all of this fits within monotheism. Yeah, and many, you mentioned this earlier, Michael, you know, distort the scriptures for their own destruction. Um, you know, I think there's that passage in Colossians, he's the firstborn among creation. Um, this idea that Christ was created first and then from Christ, all other things were made. Uh, this is something that's entirely denied. It, first of all, is polytheism to hold this position. It means that there is one God. And then after that God, there was another God, right? Some will say, well, he wasn't created. He was begotten. Well, so the, 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 the creeds will try to make sense of this by saying that Jesus is eternally begotten. He was always proceeding from the Father. He, there was never a moment in time, according to the Christian faith, that, there, that Jesus never was. Of course, with all of these other non-Christian faiths, they will say things like he came into being or he was created or he was begotten or he was made, but they don't talk about eternal begottenness. They will say there was a moment in time when that was, I don't know exactly when it was. It was maybe after the creation of time. Maybe it was, but there was a point at some point that Jesus wasn't. So to do this is to deny monotheism. Uh, if Jesus is created, uh, part of monotheism is that God, there's one, and that one God is the maker of all things. If Jesus was made at any time, Jesus cannot be God. And if he is a God, he is some kind of lesser God. So this affects the co-equal co-eternal and monotheism all at the same time. So we want to make sure to reject anything along those lines. Um, when we talk about God, it's probably also important to say that God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, right? So he's everywhere. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And those attributes are unique to the person of God. Um, now there are in the Bible, other beings given the title Elohims, right? And these uh, are often referring to angels, lesser created beings who, you know, uh, rule and reign with God, but they're not all powerful. They're not all present. They're not all knowing. They have a limited knowledge, power, and, 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 uh, and might. They, it came into being. Um, but when we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you'll find that they have these attributes. The Spirit is all knowing. The Spirit searches out the depths and the minds of God, right? No one knows the thoughts of a man except for the Spirit of that man. No one knows the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God, right? So the Spirit knows even the thoughts of God, right? So all knowing. We see that with, uh, again, omnipresent, the spirits everywhere, heights of the hills, depths of the valleys, all powerful. We see all of these attributes giving to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit, but no other created being. Um, okay, anything yeah. else we need to add there on... Uh, on yeah, uh, I, I think that's pivotal to define it that way, because if, if uh, and especially that if Jesus is created, don't call him God, because he's not God. That's right. If, if you define him that way. And, and so that's why this is so central. And it's what I said earlier about the Psalms. This comes down to who you worship. And, and that's why I, make, I say this is a salvation issue. If you don't worship the one true God, you are not saved. And if Jesus is the one true God and you refuse to worship him as the one true God, eternal in his being, then you are not saved. And I, and I call on you. I implore you to repent and to turn to Jesus in whom alone there is mercy for sins. Uh, I, I think Josh, just kind of pressing forward here. Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about monotheism 
And I think we should talk a little bit about what it means that to, de to describe the Trinity in terms of three persons. What is exactly, what exactly does that mean? Uh, we need to be careful not to say people that's different. That's right. And that's typically how we'll, um, how we'll do like, how we understand it rationally in our mind is we, we think of it like people like, Oh, you got the father over here and the son and, and, and the spirit is there, though they're three completely, you know, I'm occupying a certain space in Oklahoma city. Josh is Oklahoma uh, is occupying a certain space in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so uh, we, we have a certain, certain sorts of constraints. I mean, Josh and I are not one in any sense like that. Now, now there is a sense, you know, Paul will say in Ephesians four, you are all members of one another to be joined in the body of Christ does give us a sense of oneness. Jesus prays for this in John 17, that they may be all one, but, but the Trinity's oneness goes, goes to a level that Michael and Josh oneness does not. Okay. Right. And, um, because Josh and I are different people, but the son is not a, a different people <laughs> than the father. Okay, uh, the Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Spirit is a person. So what exactly is a person? Uh, this is Matthew Barrett. I highly recommend his book called Simply Trinity. Here's how he defines it. He says, a person is a subsisting relation distinguished from another person by his eternal relations of origin alone. And then parentheses, paternity, filiation, spiration. A divine person is nothing but the divine essence subsisting in an especial manner. That's a quote from John Owen. Okay, so uh, and so here are just a few of the keys. Eternal relations of origin. Josh and I don't have an eternal relation of origin because I was born in 1981 and Josh was born like three years ago. I don't know, Josh, what was your birthday? I'm joking. Like the 90s? The Something 90s. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> you sound deeply offended, Josh. Um, That's okay. So... So, uh, I still have more back beard to... than you shave your beard. Let people <laughs> really believe that, that you're older I lost than I am. a lot of years there. Okay. <laughs> um, but neither Josh nor I are eternal in our origin. Only God is. And so we use the word person to describe their eternal relations of origin. And, and so the father in paternity, he has revealed himself as the father. And so the son comes from the father. It's not that the son sent the father to the earth. Uh, no, the Father sent the Son to the earth. And in fact, the incarnation itself is an expression of the eternal origin of the Son in the Father, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Eternally begotten, not begotten in time. It's not like he wasn't and then he was. No, the Son is eternal in his nature. But he, in some mysterious sense that I can't really fathom or explain, he comes from the Father, from eternity, but from the Father. The incarnation manifests that in time and space, but it has been true that he is from the Father. And so you have the paternity of the Father, and it's called the filiation of the Son. Uh, and filiation comes from a Latin word and speaks of sonship. Uh, and so Jesus is eternally the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God in the incarnation. He has eternally been the Son of God. It's how he reveals himself to us. And then last of all, we have what they call the spiration of the Spirit. And we in the Western church would say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. In the Eastern church, they would say 
that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's kind of what caused the great schism uh, around the turn of the first millennium. Uh, but the but the Spirit coming from, and I'm going to say this as a Protestant, Western Christian, uh, the Spirit pro- proceeds from the Father and the Son, uh, and that's called spiration. But all of these are eternal relations of origin, and, and so they are different. It's not like the Father spirates from the Spirit. It's not like the Son is the Son of the Spirit. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work that way. The, the Son proceeds from the Father in filiation. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit spirates from the Father and the Son. And so these eternal relations of origin are what distinguish the members of the Trinity. And yet, none of them lose not even 1% of their divine essence in any of this eternal proceeding forth. So there's my best to articulate the mystery and ineffability of the Trinity without committing heresy. How did I do, Josh? No, oh, wonderful, wonderful. I think I think that that's the difficulty that we have in this process because we want to try to make this as layman as possible. And and those were all. <laughs> if if you're a humble pirate, you know the the, the acquiescing of those requests don't always make super super a uh, ton of sense. Um, when I, if I'm going to try to dumb this down, it might be easier to define what the Trinity isn't than what the Trinity for sure is when we're talking about persons here. Because I think Michael is, again, 100% correct in saying that the relationship between the persons shows us personality. We can't really exactly define how there can be three separate persons because we don't have persons in beings in created orders. This is something that transcends the created order, but we see is confessed in the scripture. We see in the scripture that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and that their relationship with one another is different. So when you think of persons, we often think, if I was going to describe a person, I would start describing a height, a weight, an eye color, a hair color, the year that they were born like Michael did just now. But this isn't the way that the Bible refers to God as personality. In fact, there's this bit of this kind of debate um, between Jesus and the woman at the well, And as they're debating uh, this kind of interchange of where God is to be worshipped, Jesus settles the argument by saying that God isn't worshipped in these places because you worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and truth. Now, he isn't talking, he's not trying to give some ontology lesson on what God is, but in that, we learn that God isn't physical, right? He's not in Sumeria. He's not in Jerusalem. He is spirit and he does speak to that Uh, there is something different about god and we have to place that in context we talk about being and personhood god is one being but there are three persons within the one being god and again i mentioned we see this in scripture Uh, jesus's name will be everlasting god isaiah 9 6 Uh, uh, jesus made himself equal with God in John 5 18 remember when the, uh, they're they're ready to stone him or throw him off a cliff right they're really really angry with Jesus because he is making himself equal with God G- uh, John tells us this is my favorite one in John 12 41 remember that story of Isaiah chapter 6 he sees uh, Christ ex- no, he says, he says he sees God exalted sitting on a throne right it's, it's seraphim comes down and cleans his lips right the year the King Uzziah died it's a wonderful story in Isaiah 6 
But John interprets this account and tells us that when Isaiah saw Jesus's glory, when he saw his glory, he spoke of him in Isaiah 6, right? So when we, uh, in John uh, 12, 41, we now know that Isaiah 6, the everlasting God, is speaking of Jesus. So Jesus is God. He calls himself, he makes him equal with God. He's called the Almighty God in Isaiah 9, 6. But then we also see that Jesus is, is different. Jesus is not the Father, and Jesus is not the Spirit. There are tons of other verses that call Jesus God. Michael, do you want to run through a few other ones since I ran through those top three? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, we have Thomas uh, at the resurrection. You know, put your hand on my uh, on my wounds, and uh, you know, Thomas saying, "My Lord and my God." Jesus doesn't deny it. Uh, same thing in Matthew chapter eight, the disciples worship him. Uh, chapter 14, they worship him. Jesus doesn't deny it. Unlike Revelation 19, when uh, John is in heaven, an angel uh, is worshiped by John. John worships the angel and the angel says, don't worship me. I'm not God. Worship him. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus receives worship. Titus 2.13, uh, it, it says, uh, you know, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead uh, bodily, uh, or the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, Revelation 1.8, he calls himself the Almighty. Uh, those are just a few, I, and I've worked through this with my staff. I've gone through uh, probably... 70 scriptures with my staff that very directly teach that Jesus is God. And uh, and yet Jesus is not the same as the Father, for he prays to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not the same as the Spirit, for the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. He leaves the wilderness full of the Spirit. He, uh, uh, at, at various times, he uh, you know, I'd say his baptism, the, the spirit descends upon him like a dove. The father speaks in that moment. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If they're the exact same, why is he talking to himself? If modalism is right, that God just has these different forms where it's like God, you know, kind of like the solid liquid gas, like, you know, God sometimes takes this, you know, just like water is sometimes a solid and, and it, is ice and sometimes it's a liquid and it's water and sometimes it's a gas and it's uh you know and it's vapor uh just just like water takes these different forms god is sometimes father and sometimes son and sometimes spirit uh but but this is actually heresy and it was condemned in the early church uh and and, and so uh if if god was saying this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased if modalism is true, it's like he has schizophrenia. Like, wait, if the son is me, then why am I praising him? <laughs> and, and, and Jesus, when praying to the father, how is the son praying to the father if the son is the father? If they're the exact same thing in different form, modalism doesn't make sense, not to mention it's heretical. So, so if so, you're there and you're going, what is modalism, right? What, why, wait, Michael, did you use another word that I don't understand? Uh, yeah. Modalism yeah, denies the persons of the Trinity and says they're manifestations. So mm -hmm. modalism says, you know, like I have a son, right? So I'm a dad. I'm also a husband, right? Um, I'm also a coworker, right? So they'll say, you know, you took your coworker hat off and you put your dad hat on and you took your, your dad hat off and you put your husband hat on, right? Um, I am operating in different ways, but I'm still the same person, right? That's what modalism says the Trinity is. What that does is that denies that there are separate persons in the one 
being, right? So um, uh, you're the same person the whole time. I'm the same person the whole time. I'm just operating in different ways. That denies personhood. So when we say Jesus is not the Father and Jesus is not the Spirit, to your point, um, Jesus says, I'm not doing my will. I'm doing the will of my Father. I'm not doing this to please myself. I'm doing this to please the Father, John 5.30, right? Uh, uh, Jesus uh, uh, obeys, right? He does all that the Father commands him to do. It's the speech that comes from the Father, John 12.29. Jesus prays to the Father, to your point. Um, And then he's not the Spirit either. So we can't say that they are one and the same. You're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're separate persons. They're not the same person. And again, we can over and over stress that again, but but this is the idea. Monotheism, we believe in one God. Within that one God, we believe in three distinct persons, and we don't want to confuse the persons. We want to say, we want to affirm wholeheartedly, the Father is God. We want to wholeheartedly affirm the Son is God. We want to wholeheartedly affirm that the Spirit is God, while maintaining the Father is not the Son or Spirit, the Son is not the Spirit or the Father, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. So we want to make sure in our articulation of things that we want to not confuse the persons, right? But we want to affirm that they all have the same essence. They are all God. What makes them God stuff, they share that. But there are persons within that God stuff. Um, So, yeah. You know, when you said that, confusing the persons, and that's a quote from the Athanasian Creed. Here it is again. Now, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God and Trinity and Trinity and unity, neither confusing the persons and then the next part, nor dividing the divine being. And so this might be like somebody who takes the three-leaf clover and says, well, um, you've got the father, he's you know one side of the leaf, and then the son is in the middle, and then you've got the spirit over here, and together they make one God, but in, in three persons, just like these three lumps of the three-leaf clover. And, and just kind of like warning to the uh, wise here, um, don't use analogies or or I'll say this. If you use analogy, preface it with this analogy falls apart in a thousand ways. We cannot perfectly depict uh, the triune God. Uh, If you, if you preface it, I can be okay. uh, You know, and you could might say, and so the Trinity is kind of like this. I could maybe be okay with it, possibly depending on what you're saying. But, but as a general rule, general rule, I would stay away from analogies when talking about the Trinity um, this is sometimes called partialism, what I just described with the three-leaf clover. And the Athanasian Creed addresses it, nor dividing the divine being. Uh, Ed Litton, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, got in trouble uh, for this because on his website, it, uh, it talks about the Father, Son, and Spirit, each being part of God. And they quickly scrubbed that and replaced it on their website. Don't and, blame uh, him. He probably just copied it from somebody else. I'm sure he copied and pasted it. I, I'm sure, or I'm sure someone on his staff copied and pasted it. Now, I will say, I think that it's the responsibility of elders in a church to really, really closely safeguard the doctrine of the church. And what you put out there on the website, you, it, it's a mistake that shouldn't have happened. I'll say that. Uh, but I'm very much not to, calling Ed Litton a, a heretic. Or to be clear, I was making a plagiarism joke about him copying something. I wasn't saying oh. he shouldn't be faulted. <laughs> he shouldn't be faulted for copying. He should be oh, faulted dude, for copying. It, it was a was it was a joke. Burn. Okay, so but as you, as I, your point, hey, I'll, I will say this: plagiarizing sermons is the worst. I, sure. I just got to say that that is the worst. Like. Preacher, get on it. your knees before God and seek his face and put your nose in this book because you have to share a message with your congregation. Right. Like, 
Why are you going to sin against all? I don't care how busy you are. Preach the word. That's your calling in life. Or be a plumber, okay? And of course, we're all called to preach the word. But but get your nose in this book and get a message. Don't plagiarize. That's that's terrible. Sorry. It has nothing to do with the Trinity. But. I've started this episode twice stating that we stole this outline from James White. Um, but I said it on the front end, so it's okay. Okay. Uh, to Michael's point on illustrations, uh, this is... Uh, on the Incarnation, right, uh, by Athanasius. Um, this has got some really interesting illustrations. And he, he he prefaces the illustrations, like Michael was talking about eternal spiration or the, the eternal procession of the sun. Um, uh, Athanasius kind of explains the sun and says, we have like this fiery gaseous ball up in the sky. And from that emits heat and emits light, but it's all the sun. Right. Again, that illustration breaks down. But when he's trying to explain spiration uh, and procession, this is the illustration that the early church used as an illustration. If you really pressed that hard um, and you would say, but there's no sentient persons amongst the heat or the light or the the gaseous ball. um, Again, all of these illustrations are going to fall apart because they're created, uh, not the creator. So there is something transcendent about God's divine being. I have one for you. So Tony Evans uh, got in a oh lot boy. of heat recently um, because he's he said that the Trinity. Now I think if I remember right on the clip, he defines it on the front end correctly. He's like, Do you want to play you know, it? It's like twenty one, seconds. You have it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, let's play. Where there is illegitimate disunity, God will not respond because of His unified Trinitarian nature. One God composed of three co-equal persons who is one in essence while being distinct in personhood like a pretzel with three holes. The first hole is not the second hole. The second hole is not the third hole, but they all tie together by the same dough. Dude, um, actually, I really like Tony Evans, but um, (laughs) but I will tell you this. His definition on the front end was baller like that was great. It's like he memorized an ancient creed. That was really good. Yeah. Um, You know, and again, I think an analogy can be okay because we're using, even to use this as an illustration, we're using words right now to describe the ineffable, ineffable God who could not even, like words do not do even the slightest justice to his greatness, okay? So I'm not saying it's a sin to use an analogy. I just... Personally, I think we need to really, really preface it with, it's sort of like this kind of, you know, something like that. But every analogy breaks down. I I think where this one breaks down, Josh, is that um, the whole of the pretzel is not the enjoyable part of the pretzel. It's it's the non-pretzel. So that's actually not part of the pretzel. And so this is defining God by the parts around him, which are not. and so I, I think it it's, it just illustrates how it inevitably breaks down. But yeah. here, here's one like here's an analogy that I've used to describe eternal generation of the sun. Um, I, I've said it's a little bit like this, but I don't like analogies. But it's just a little bit like this because whenever you talk about eternal generation, people scratch their head and they're like, I, I hear what you're saying, and I have no idea what it means. Um, and the analogy does kind of help. Um, I say it's a little bit like a a foot that steps into the sand and leaves a footprint except the foot has been there eternally and therefore so has the footprint. And so what it communicates is that the footprint comes from the foot. The son comes from the father 
and yet this dates back to eternity past, and yet the analogy still breaks down uh, like every analogy because it it almost makes the sun out to be like not a true foot, like not a not a. It's just like is he just a print? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's yeah, it's it, it's, it's a, not perfect. In, and and to if I was going to use his illustration, okay, imagine an infinite burning sun, right? That never is extinguished. Okay, it burns forever. And what always proceeds from that sun is light and heat. That was eternally. sentient. Yeah. And that yeah. the light and heat was sentient. Exactly. Like none of those all of these things break down because the the heat is not of the same essence as the burning gas. You see what I'm saying? It's not homoousios as the gas. It's distinctly different, but it describes procession in that in one nature of its being there is procession so anyway it all of these illustrations i think break down somewhere um let, let's talk about uh explaining eternality and co-equality this is something that's really really important we've talked about it already a couple of times up into this point but in talking about the persons of the trinity are co-equal right and co-eternal there was never a moment when the spirit came into being there was never a moment when the son came into being uh, i don't think that there's an argument a lie that says the father came into being but even if that were the case it would be absolutely demonstrative it'd be wrong be false uh, demonstratively wrong um so uh you know i guess the gnostics got close i suppose but yeah we would say 100 percent agree with that it this is really important god is eternal right we talked about god the person the, be- the sorry, that person the being god is eternal the being god is creator so every person within that being has to share those attributes right so uh, if god created everything then the spirit created everything and the son created everything and the father created everything if god the being uh is eternal then the persons of that being the father the son and the spirit are also eternal um and, and when we talk about equality one john one one through five is a great verse that kind of describes this. And I actually have a Greek scholar coming on next week to kind of pull this apart for us so that we can get all of the meat out of it. Uh, but but here's, here's how it reads, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything uh, made that was made in him was life and and the life was the light of men light shine in the darkness and the darkness could uh, has not overcome it some translations will say could not comprehend it but but here in this passage we have is in the beginning uh and again i'm going to slaughter this butcher this phrase because i'm not a greek scholar but it's something like in arche and helagos right as far back as you can go back forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and then some as far back as back goes there was god and the word was with him as far back as that goes. And he, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And he, Jesus, was God, right? So we have Jesus, as far back as back goes, uh, is with God and was God. There was never a time in which Jesus was not. And he makes himself equal with the Father. We said this in John 5 earlier, and we see this here in John uh, 1, 1 through 5, that he's been made equal equal with the father now there are going to be lots of verses that suggest you know he is greater than i or he's going to talk about the father but all of the conversation of the father's greatness in correlation to jesus's incarnation is that christ has been humbled right he, he hasn't been exalted and, and even eternally in the relation in eternity past all of the texts of scripture that talk about the father being greater than the son it's after the, the son willfully humbles himself 
right? So so there is context to those verses as well. Michael, it sounded like you had something to, yeah. to, to jump in there. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus will say in John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. So he's showing us something. What he's showing us by that prayer is that he presently in his incarnation while he's praying this, uh, he presently does not have a glory that he formerly had. He has a lesser glory. Uh, he, and so in that context, when he's saying my father is greater than I, he's speaking from the place of his humiliation as in his active humbling of himself. And so uh, that's exactly right, Josh. There uh, is very much a context for that verse. And John makes sure that we don't misunderstand this context by beginning his gospel the way he does in the first five verses of John, where in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I mean, you can't get more emphatic than this. And John, speaking from a Jewish perspective, when he says that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that word God, for, for a Jewish person, God can't mean uh, a non-created or, or a, a non-creator. God can't mean a um, a God who was created, like a lowercase I was created God. Now, again, Josh talked about this angelic creatures and that sort of thing, but that's not what's being talked about here. This is talking about the source of all creation, Jesus Christ, who was with God from the very beginning for all eternity past. This is how a Jewish reader would have read it. And that's the eyes with which we need to read the scripture, not with our uh, 21st century, my Mormon prophet told me eyes. No, we, we go back to the beginning. How would they have read it back then? That's good. This is a quote from B.B. Warfield, uh, renowned uh, theologian from days past. Uh, he says, and the word was with God. He's talking about this phrase. This is his commentary on this passage. The language is pregnant. It's not merely context with God that is asserted uh, as of two being standing side by side, united in local relation, or even in common conception. What is suggested is an active relation of intercourse. The distinct personality of the word is therefore not obscurely uh, uh, intimated uh, from all eternity the word has been with God as fellow he who is in the very beginning already was was as in communion so he already was right uh, as far back as it was he already was is what B.B. Warfield is saying so he's not just with him he is him there's like a oneness to this um, he says uh, uh, an intercourse which I think is interesting so let's let's run a couple of um heresies yeah, actually, by each other michael that. and see if we can detect heresies <laughs> well in the spirit of big words that we're teaching people right now perichoresis is the word you just use the word intercourse but um but perichoresis speaks of sort of the dance of the trinity uh the interpenetration it, uh, wow. of the trinity the mutual i know the mutual indwelling of the trinity and um and, and so you know where jesus will pray in john 17 about the father and me and and me and the Father, and uh, uh, and we see the same sort of language used to the Spirit, especially yeah, in that's right. John, that there's this, he's in me, I'm in him, this mutual indwelling, this inner penetration, the dance of the Trinity. That's what we, uh, the word that theologians have for that is called perichoresis. And so B.B. Uh, Warfield's uh, comments here are saying, this is John 1, 1 to 5. It's 
It's not talking about some sort of distant created being who came, you know, that where God has existed for eternity past and then Jesus came into the picture. No, it's this eternal perichoresis, this eternal dance of the Trinity. Uh, and, but Josh, you wanted to talk about heresies uh, or well, did you want to pause on Yeah, I just, I just want to hop on that real quick because I use the word intercourse and use the word dance and penetration. And when we talk about these things, we don't want to over-sexualize the unity of God in eternity past because those words have a level of sexual baggage in the West that is not in these theological conversations. We're talking about the mutual indwelling, the perichoresis, like you called it a dance. And I, again, all of those are appropriate words, but do not need to be used in a sort of sexualized context. I just think it's it's worthy of mentioning when, when we're talking in theology terms, none of that is even in the purview in any way. So yeah. uh, worth no, mentioning. I, I agree with you. But Josh, do you think that God and his providence and the way he created us and uh, you know, he could have created just all men or he could have created sure. just all women, but he created men and women different, yet both reflecting his glory, man through his masculinity and woman through her femininity, through through our uniqueness. He, uh, it, It's like we each display the glory and beauty of God differently. And then even in the, in the sexual union and in the, in the coming uh, together of male and female, uh, where, where it's like you, you really needed both of them, a, a plurality, if you will, uh, to fully express the godness of God. Um, do you think that there is in that a pointer to the intimacy and the pleasure and the oneness that is the triune God? Do you think that God intends that as a pointer? Yeah, I mean, can our anthropomorphized embodied physical um, desires um, and characteristics speak to the image of the invisible God? Absolutely. Um, but what we wouldn't want to do is draw a one-to-one -one correlation with our anatomy and God being spirit. Um, that's where that thing breaks down. Um, uh, there's a book called The Divine Romance by Gene Edwards, and I bet you there's a group of theologians somewhere who hate that book. I think it's an illustration. I also think it's beautiful. Like it's hard to read this story and not weep, but like there's this story of God and he goes along in the garden with Adam and they're like naming everything. And he's like looking for his Isha, right? Like he's like, I'm Isha, where's my Isha, right? Like where's my woman? Uh, you know, the hippo's got a lady, the bird's got a lady, all these people have a lady. And then he's having this conversation with God. Like, would you, would you make for me, you know, a woman? And then God is talking to him and he goes, well, there is within you another woman. He's like, but, like, I have to kill you, like, to bring it out, you know, like, that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, it's this beautiful story. And then when the angels are watching this, they're like, wow, this is, she's even more beautiful than he, being Adam. And they're talking about this. And then they go, wait a second. If Adam's created in God's image, is is there an Isha in God? And talking about, like, the, the bride that is to come, the bride of Christ. And, uh, yeah, it was just a beautiful, um, a beautiful, uh, poetic, uh, uh, allegory. It's not. It's not obviously not a real story. He's not writing this as if this actually happened, but just kind of theology infused in this beautiful piece of, I don't know, poetic beauty. It's it's a wonderful book. I encourage people to read it. Um, so yeah, does that kind of answer your question, Michael, a little bit? Um, yeah. There's just not a one yeah, one so. correlation with anatomy. Um, okay. So well, can I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think so. I think it's we're, we continue to touch on the ineffability, the ineffableness of God, and the impossibility of uh, depicting Him perfectly. And so we just we're, we're trying to tread carefully here. Yeah, uh, but let's so, let's talk about people who haven't treaded so carefully, Josh. 
Okay. Um, let's, let's imagine that somebody says to you that, Hey, you know, we believe in one God. He shows up in the old Testament as father and the gospels. He shows up as a son in the new covenant age. He shows up as the spirit. What would you say about this? Okay. So if you're watching, I've given you hopefully these simple categories, monotheistic, right? Um, three persons and co-eternal in this illustration that Michael just gave, God shows up in the Old Testament as this. He shows up in the Gospels as Jesus. He shows up in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit. This denies the person language that we talked about. So if we're going to go through those categories, we're going to say, oh, that denies person language. That kind of talk about God is not Trinitarian. So uh, if you're walking through, you don't have to know all the isms. Like this one is called modalism or Sabellianism. You don't need to know that ism. What you need to know is that this denies the personhood of God, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are different persons. Michael, let me toss this one to you, okay? Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all hold the title God, uh, but the Father created the Son before the rest of creation. So the Son is equal to the Father, but the Son is the firstborn of creation. What does this deny? Okay, well, first of all, and this is one of those where people can say what they want all day long, and their words, it's they're denying themselves as they talk. So when they say the son is equal to the father, well, no, he's not in your articulation because you just said Amen. that the son is created. So if you, there's a creator and he created the son, you can't come to me and say, well, the son is equal to the father. No, you, you actually are denying that, even though you're saying it, that they're equal by your prior words, you've just denied that they are co-equal in any historical way of defining that you're using your own definition okay uh they are not uh, obviously co-eternal and uh this is not monotheism because if uh the father is if you're saying the father is god the son is god the spirit is god now i'll affirm that as a monotheist uh but but since you're actually saying that the son and i guess the spirit are created they're god in a different sense which puts them into a, a sort of different category of god which makes you really a polytheist. Yep, it's a specifically a tritheist because they believe in three gods. And in some sense, they're also an Aryan because they believe that Jesus came into being and is somehow, even if they don't admit it, a lesser God because he's not eternal with the Father. Right. So Okay, I got a heresy for you. Okay. The Spirit is an impersonal force that depends uh, from, uh, that comes probably from the descends father from the, the son. son. Yeah. Yeah. Descends. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, some will say, Hey, the spirit comes, it's a, it's a spirit of Jesus or it's the spirit of the father or the, you know, the father and the son come together in relation after the ascension and together they pour out the spirit. Um, but they'll talk about the spirit as not a person, but a force. And again, an impersonal force. This denies the personalities of the father, the son and the spirit. And we would want to point people to First Corinthians 12, the spirit gives gifts as he wills. The Holy Spirit has a will. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then the, the, what's really important about Matthew 12 is that he says, blasphemes against the son will be forgiven, but against the spirit, they won't be forgiven. Clearly making the Holy Spirit a person and a person whom if you blaspheme against, it's a, a heavier weight than if you were to blaspheme against the sun, which I think is interesting. So definitely a person. We would definitely deny this on the grounds that it says that the Holy Spirit's not a person, but it's in that personality category. Uh, Michael, okay, yes. uh, number four, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three divine beings who cooperate in all of their works. What do you think? Yeah, 
I don't like divine beings because divine beings sounds like, well, there's a divine being over here and there's another divine being over here and another divine being over here. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not different beings. They are distinct persons. Good. And there is a difference. It, it, it comes back to the Michael and Josh analogy. It's basically peopling the persons of the Trinity. And, and we can't do that. There aren't three beings. There is one being uh, who are of the same essence. And, uh, and so it, it denies that and in, and in doing so denies monotheism. It's once again, tritheism. Okay. Here's the last one, Josh. Uh, we all, <laughs> we all become gods when we die. And again, see all of these categories. And, and this is why this is important is because you don't have to know all the theisms. You don't even know have to say who said that, right? You don't have to know what religion said that. What you have to know is if you can define monotheism, if you can define the three persons within that monotheism, and if you can deny the eternality and co-equality of those. So if I say we become gods when we die, right? I'm denying co-equality. So I'm not equal with God, right? Because I had a being. I came into being at some point in time, mm -hmm. right? I'm also denying monotheism because there's a plurality of gods, a pantheon of gods. So um, you don't have to know all the isms. The isms are helpful. They're framed in history. If you constantly study history, you will know how to discern these things and detect them in conversation with people. But you don't have to know all the isms. All you have to know is what the is is, right? All you have to know hey is what is God? If you know what God is, then you know what God is not. So I'd encourage you, study, study, study monotheism, the three persons of the Trinity, and study the co-equality and co-eternality of the persons of the Godhead, and it will constantly steer you straight. So uh, I hope this episode's been edifying, encouraging. I apologize for the interruptions from earlier. We'll piece these two videos together and upload them as one single piece. Michael, do you have anything that you want to say to the folks before we sign off? Oh, I just want to remind you guys of the resources that we've mentioned. Uh, we mentioned two books. Uh, and if you read these two books on the Trinity, you'll be reasonably well-educated on the Trinity. Uh, one we mentioned <clears throat> repeatedly was James White's uh, The Forgotten Trinity. Yep. Very good one. And then uh, there is Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Now, we've done episodes with both of these men, uh, but we've done an episode with Matthew Barrett on the Trinity. So you can actually go back and, and check that out. Uh, but I definitely recommend those two books, very good books, and uh, be very helpful in this conversation. And if you're watching and you're a, Mor a Mormon or you're a Jehovah's Witness or you're a Oneness Pentecostal, I, I just want to uh, appeal to you on, on the basis of just how this has been interpreted throughout all of church history. I want to ask mm -hmm. you, do you think that the Holy Spirit has just been absent from the church for all of these years and that, the, uh, and that these people who are condemned as heretics that believe the things that you believe— that the church was just wrong all these years until some guy came along and said something different. Mm -hmm. I just want to challenge you on that. I, I, I'm not proud in this. I, I, it's by grace I have been saved. I have nothing to do with my salvation. I hold nothing over you. I'm not smarter. I'm not better in any way. I'm simply appealing to you by the mercy of Christ. There is a God who sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your sins so that you could be completely forgiven and have the slate wiped completely clean. And this God, God, the God in sending the Son, God the Son is himself God. And so this is God, in a, in a sense, taking the grenade for you on the cross so you wouldn't have to take it. So all you have to do is repent of your sins to trust him with your eternal future, and he'll give you forgiveness and a brand new life. So I just want to appeal to you to do that.
Yeah, amen, amen. So let's, uh, I'd say books, uh, Matthew Barrett, Simply Trinity, you mentioned that one, Delight in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, The Forgotten Trinity by James White, and The Holy Trinity by Robert Lethem would all be wonderful, wonderful books. I'll put all of them in the description of the video and the podcast. We did so an uh, episode with up. Robert Lethem as well. Huh? We did an episode with Robert Lethem as oh, well. Oh yeah, it's it's in one of on those 20 yeah. podcasts we've yeah, done all on very the Trinity. Good. All very good. And you okay, might guys. find yourself out there going, man, there's a lot of vocabulary on this. This is kind of difficult. I'd really encourage you, go watch every video on that playlist and watch if you don't just come out going, dang, I know this now. Um, I, I find that theology and Bible literacy works better through immersion than it does. Like you take a Spanish class in, in high school, you take three years of it. You couldn't order a burrito or find a bathroom in Mexico to save your life, you know? Um, but if you go move to Mexico for six months, you can come out completely fluent uh, if you immerse yourself in the culture and immerse yourself in the language. And I find the same to be to, to be true of theology. The more content you just kind of overwhelm yourself with, at some point it clicks. So I just encourage you, do the work, you know, watch the playlists, read some books. It will absolutely edify you, your worship. If you're out there and you're like, man, I just really want to be able to, why, why are we wasting our time with this? We need to go win the loss. We need to go worship Jesus. I promise you, Okay, you go buy these three books, you read those three books, and you watch those playlists, and you can't worship with a more fervent and glorious worship. You, you don't go out there and do evangelism that's more fruitful and powerful. This doesn't help you in those efforts. I will I will refund you the price of those books, okay? Uh, you can email up at josh at theremnantradio.com. I know that's a, that's a heavy claim, but I'm serious. Like, uh, worship is more enjoyable. Evangelism is more fruitful when you know the God you're talking about. Anyway, blessings, guys. Thank you so much for watching this episode. Uh, we live stream typically from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Time. If we can figure out what's going on with the live stream, we'll keep doing that. Uh, and uh, if you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've produced, there are links in the description. You can give one-time gifts on PayPal or reoccurring givers there on Patreon. It's five bucks a month to get access to extra content like the book club where we're doing screw tape letters. You guys are going to enjoy that. Anyway, blessings. We will see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.